Hey, everybody. Thanks, Leslie, for that meditation, too. It's uh, fitting, and I, I like the question of, <clears throat> or the reference to Jefferson here, and all men are created equal as a kind of aspirational imagination. And maybe that's in part what I want to talk about today, a kind of imagination. And um, what kind of world is possible? And if we can be just uh, dualistic for a moment, um, what kind of world is possible in a dark sense? And what kind of world is possible in a, in a light sense? I think these are sort of background. Um, and I could hear a bit in that song, too, that, that was just being played. So, um, yeah, we're finishing now a series which I've called, we've called The Great Questions. And, and today I want to ask a very, very old question, one of the oldest that we have on record, which comes from the Torah. And um, the question is, am I my brother's keeper, or I put sister's keeper, or sibling's keeper, or something like that? Am I my brother's keeper? It's a, it comes from the, from the Torah. And I'm going to read, I brought, my, I brought my Bible today, I hope you did, so... Um, this is the JPS Torah commentary, and so I want to read from Genesis in, in a little bit, because I want, I think, to really wrestle with this question, let's begin where the, our ancient brothers and sisters began, and see, what, see what's in the field here, see what's in the terrain. Um, so that's kind of where I'm headed, and I want to start off with introducing you to a series of sayings, really quotations from the ancient world, from the ancient ways, from our ancestors. And um, it has to do with a kind, what, what we could even wonder is a kind of universal human ethic. And we would want to ask questions like, how did this emerge and why did this emerge? And is it true even? So here, here are some lines. This is from Leviticus, which is also in the Torah, one of the books in the Torah. Love your neighbor as yourself. I know Jesus often gets credit for that, but he's quoting from Leviticus. And actually, in one of the Gospels, it's not even Jesus that says it, um, because someone asks him, uh, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, what do you think? <laughs> and so it's, it's not even out of the mouth of Jesus. They're quoting from Le Leviticus, this very old book of rules, mostly, laws, precepts. Here's another one. Um, from Jesus, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Okay, so this is interesting. About a thousand years after the, the Torah is written, maybe more, you have Jesus coming along saying, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Here's a quotation from Hillel. He's a rabbi. He died in 10 AD, so about the time when Jesus was a boy. Here's Hillel's way of putting it. What is harmful to yourself, do not do unto others. Interesting. Basically, Jesus and Hillel are kind of having a conversation here. Hillel puts it in the negative. What is harmful to yourself, do not do, do to other people. Jesus says, um, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. It's a very similar formulation here. Okay, now we're going to um, cross the vast Arabian desert and Persia and the continent of India to, to the Far East. Here's Confucius. Do not impose on others what you yourself do not desire. Now, I want to go ahead and plant a seed. 
these two worlds did not really speak to each other at this time. Now, there was trade, so you could begin to wonder, but don't think for a moment that Confucius was reading the Torah or Moses was like, you know, I'm going to consult Confucius, okay? These are rising independently, really. Um, this is all from the Confucian tradition here, different teachers. Try your best to treat others as you wish to be treated. Hmm. Like the sun and moon in their alternating shining, all things are produced and developed without injuring one another. This is Zhang Yang, which I'm sure you were just reading this morning. And here's Confucius's grandson here. The way of great learning lies in illuminating luminous virtue by treating people with affection. Now, I just, I'm making a point here. These ancient traditions arose independently of one another. Why? I don't actually know the answer to that question. Why? I'll tell you one reason why they arose independently, because the opposite was true. You don't go around saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, unless some people don't. Am I making sense? That's the reason why you have a law, a precept, or in this case, more of a teaching, a wise saying, because the opposite is true. People must not have done this, otherwise you don't need to say it. So, we're already beginning to wonder about what is the nature of the human condition, really. And how did our ancestors wrestle with the nature of the human condition? And what possibilities or imaginations are present in the human condition? What do we imagine life is? What do we imagine life could be? What do we imagine our world is? What do we imagine our world could be? These lie behind some of these, um, a kind of universal ethic. Okay, so I want to keep going with this list of quotations, but just turn the, your attention just a little bit to, um, I guess, the question of why. Now, just listen to these, these quotations. This is true religion, caring for the orphans and the widows. Okay? That's from the book of James. It's from the New Testament. This is true religion, caring for the orphans and the widows. Now, think about society here for a moment. And let's use a Buddhist phrase, right living. What is right living? What is or the best way of living? And James is saying, actually, to summarize all of religion is to care for orphans and widows. And I'll just paraphrase, or I'll, 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 I'll summarize who he's talking about. Marginalized people is what he means. Now, you ask, why? What, what does another person have to do with me? Is it obvious? I mean, it, let me make it more complicated. In a post-Darwin world, where we have something like the survival of the fittest, which is a little bit of an exaggeration, he sort of was saying the survival of those who are, that are best able to fit, that's really adaptation. But let's just take it as people use it. Survival of the fittest. Is it obvious that these ethics really matter? Okay, here's some more. Here's from the book of Deuteronomy. <clears throat> Do not mistreat the foreigner or the slave because you were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. 
Why, why not? Now I'm in charge. Can't I behave like my oppressors? What does it matter, really? Isn't it a matter of power, and now I have the power? Do I really need to be concerned about the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the stranger, the slave? Now, obviously, I'm just going to remind you, why are these teachings or laws in the Bible? Because obviously, people weren't acting like this. <laughs> Otherwise, you don't need to say it. Okay, here's something else. Um, now we're going to cross the vast Arabian Peninsula and go to the east again. Um, now, not to feel disinterested sympathy, sympathy with others is to lose consciousness that they are one substance with myself. So if we start to wonder, why would this matter? The East is being a little more clear. Why should I care about the foreigner, the alien, the stranger, the foreigner, my brother, my sister, the other, any other? He says, because they are one substance with myself. Now, you could disagree with that, couldn't you? One substance with myself? I don't feel that. I don't see that. What does it matter? They live on the other side of the tracks or the other side of the world. Or Are they really one substance with myself? Is that really true? Okay, and that's from Cheng Hao. Here's, I'm crossing back over, and we'll, we'll hit some St. Paul here. In Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. How many have heard that phrase before? Well, now you have, if you haven't. Okay. Um, now, I'd like to say Paul is quite a radical thinker here, especially in the first century. In Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. In, in other words, let me put it in the phrasing of the East, there's a kind of consciousness that they are one substance with myself. That's what he's hinting around about. Now, you could say, all right, he's saying in Christ, maybe only those who are in Christ, there's this kind of unitive connection. What about those who are not in Christ, so to speak? All right, that's a fair enough question. But I think what Paul, I think, is alluding to here is there's something about the unitive mystery of the Christ figure that brings things together. What was the major division for Jewish people? Jew or Gentile. That was the major division. You were either Jewish or you were not Jewish. And Paul, as a Jewish rabbi, is saying, yes, but there's this kind of unitive, unifying figure that um, takes that dividing wall down. What's the difference, is what Paul is saying. What's the difference? Okay. I'll give you more, Paul, since I got excited about him as I was putting this together. Here's, here's his metaphor. Um, the body is a unit, though it is made of many parts, and though all the parts are many, they form one body. Okay. He says, so it is with Christ. If one part suffers, all parts suffer. He's communicating, well, it's, a, it's an image, it's a metaphor, very much what the East is communicating about the unitive nature of reality. Why should you care about the other? Because they're an extension of oneself. Now, you don't have to believe that. But I'm telling you, 
both East and West are culminating in a kind of vision that this is in fact the case. The great religions, you could say. And, and, and um, it's worth noting that every religion that we know of has some version of the golden rule, have some version of you ought to care about other people the way you would like to be treated or cared for. And there's some kind of connection between you and the other. Now, I just want to make trouble the waters a little bit. Let's just say we live in a post-religious world. Okay? We just crossed over it. There's a religion that's done. All right? Just imagine. Now, where, does, where do these ethical, where do, the, do 5,000 years of, of, of this kind of religious and ethical teaching, what happens to it? Do we need it anymore? in a post-religious world. Can we just say, pay your taxes, read a science book, good enough? I, I, I don't know. I, I really am wondering. What's, where did these precepts come from? Do we need them? Do we just hang on to them for the heck of it? Or can we just say, we're kind of done with all that stuff? And, you know, after all, we evolve, we adapt. And some of us are going to be here, some of us are not. Why should I really care about someone? Really, I'm, I'm asking a very genuine question. I know most of you would say, yes, yeah, we should really care for other people. But I'm saying, really? Really, we should do that? You want to do that? That feels nice to you? Okay. All right, so I haven't even gotten to the, to the Cain and Abel story. I'm just giving you a little background. What's, what, point number one is both East and West independently came up with something like the golden rule. So we, we, we might wonder, it might matter, right? And they sort of independently came to this conclusion that the reason why we should care for our brother and sister is that somehow we are connected. They're, that the other is an extension of me, and I am an extension of the other. That's the most mystical reading. Look at, look at the um, passage I put in here from in the, whatever this thing is called, bulletin. <laughs> Heaven is my father and earth is my mother. Do you feel how already we're in the territory of a deep interconnectedness? Heaven is my father and earth is my mother. And even such a small creature as I finds an intimate place in their midst. It's, he's saying, you belong here. It's like Mary Oliver saying, you know, the, the, the geese flying home in the clear blue air, honking excitedly again and again, announcing your place in the family of things. That's the line. The, your place in the family of things. Where'd she get that? Oh, I don't know. Um, everywhere. All of the ancient traditions. Okay, he keeps going. Therefore, that which extends throughout all the universe, I regard as my body. And that which directs the universe, I consider my nature. All peoples are my brothers and sisters, and all things are my companions. Wouldn't that be nice? Talk about an imagination. All men are created equal. It's not that much different in terms of aspiration and imagination and possibility. What's possible in the human world and in the more than human world? Okay, so the golden rule developed independently. I have some points about that. 
Um, and I've already mentioned some of them. It tells us a few things, that people mistreat each other. Otherwise, you don't come up with rules like that. Um, in, here's another point that might be true. It's possible and even necessary to fight against this for the well-being of all. Would you agree with that? All right? It's possible and even necessary to fight against this. It might not be at all that natural. Sometimes what's natural and instinctual isn't all that helpful. I don't know if you've ever had kids, you know? <laughs> I was a perfect parent, of course. Um, here's another point. Um, consciousness that includes the other, both the stranger and the earth, I'd put both of them in there, is a higher form of consciousness. That's a claim I'm making, coming up out of this tradition. What do I mean by higher form of consciousness? I don't know. A higher form of consciousness, uh, a, a more developed, more mature way of, of seeing the world and being in the world, and a consciousness that includes the other. To what extent? Well, the most mystical extent is that you are an extension of me and I'm an extension of you, and of all things, and of the grass and of the trees, and I'm breathing in raven's breath and, and, and oak leaf breath and breathing out you know, my own being, which is absorbed in the larger mystery of, the, of nature itself and the Tao. All that's true. Okay, uh, here's another, well, I already asked this one. In a post-religious world, post-divine law, we could even say, what are we supposed to do with the golden rule? I mean, is it just like sentiment? Um, why should we? Plus, truth is a matter of personal perspective. My personal perspective is do unto others... Uh, I don't care. <laughs> That's my truth. My truth is what's true for me and what's good for me and what's right for me is what's ultimately important. What does it matter what happens to you? You know, dog eat dog. To hell with you. You know, what's wrong with that? It's just my truth. You see how it, it I, oh, I'm trying to make things worse here. Okay, I'm trying to make, make things worse. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's my job every week, to make things worse. <laughs> okay, here's a little line from Karen Armstrong. So how do we do this? I'm going to go ahead and say my, my point of view is that this is something, this is an aim and an ideal worth working toward, how we treat other people and how we treat the earth as also an extension of, of the mystery of the Tao, of nature, of the universe, of the world. Okay, so how do we do this? Now, here's where things get kind of troubling. Because here's what Karen Armstrong says. It requires that we look into our hearts. Okay. And of course, inside our hearts, we see only beauty and light and goodness and love and depth and insight and meaning. And okay. It requires that we look into our hearts, identify what causes us pain, and then refuse to inflict on, on anybody else. That's her version of the golden rule, Karen Armstrong. It requires that we look into our hearts, identify what causes us pain, and then refuse to inflict that on anybody else or anything else. We might even be more expansive. Which brings us to the story of Cain and Abel, because Cain and Abel is a story about looking into the human heart. Right? And I'm going to read it to you. I brought the whole thing, and it's long. Look how long it is. <laughs> uh, no, in fact, it's a very short story. It's a very terse um, scholars wonder something like, 
which is probably true of most of the oldest stories in the Bible. There must have been some longer version that God whittled down because it just sort of goes really fast. So I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to make some comments about what, um, what I think is worth thinking about. So I'm just going to stop along the way. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gained a male child with the help of the Lord. Which is, if you have children, I'm sure that's what you said. (laughs) She then bore his brother Abel. See, we're moving very quickly. Abel became the keeper of sheep. (laughs) And Cain became the tiller of the soil. Okay, so the Bible is setting something up here. And there are multiple layers, and I'm not going to have time to get into them all, but here's just one layer. This is, from the perspective of the Middle East, the major tension. You could even say was the major tension um, around the Axial Age and before, which was the tension between the shepherd and the farmer. They're codependent lovers, okay? And they don't like each other, and they need each other. And what do I mean by that? Well, from the world of the shepherd came cheese and milk and wool, and you could say meat, but that's you know um, wasn't that common because you, <laughs> uh, you didn't have uh, factory farms. You know, occasionally you killed a sheep or a goat. We're not talking about cows at this point, really. Um, at least that's not what ancient people would have imagined. So that's the job of the the shepherd, and the shepherd. There's still, there's not that much water in the Middle East. I don't know if you're aware of this. And so all, the entire shepherding community was nomadic. So, and who were the shepherds in the Bible? Let me think. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rebecca, Sarah, David, Moses, Moses' brother Aaron. Um, oh, wait, everybody. <laughs> Joseph. They're all shepherds. They're all nomadic. They're all part of that culture. They're not part of the agrarian powerhouses like Egypt and Mesopotamia. They're stuck wandering around the hills. They're nomadic. So anyway, that's the world of um, which Abel represents symbolically, and Cain is the world of the, of the farmer. And what do we mean by farming? Well, you know, ancient agriculture, wheat, grain, barley, all this stuff. And their intention, they need each other both in terms of goods, like the, the farmer needs milk and cheese and wool and meat and, um, and also needs those animals to come at the end of the year and clean up all of the leftover harvests and drop other little presents uh, in the soil to help the soil. So they need that. And, and the shepherd needs the farmer because of everything else that's in the human diet. And so these worlds need each other, but they're in land conflict. Have I made sense? So it's just setting that up. All right. Now, in the course of time, which is one of the Bible's funnier lines, it says this regularly, in the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the soil. So again, Cain is the farmer, and he brings an offering to the Lord. By the way, there's no Torah, there's no law, there's no temple, there's no no rules. He doesn't have to do this. He brings an offering. Hey, nice guy, bringing an offering. And then it says, and Abel, for his prior, brought the choicest of the firstlings of his flock. He brings an offering, also independently. 
And what's you know, good or bad about the offerings is a bit ambiguous here. It says, um, and then it says this, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, um, paid heed to Abel and his offering. God liked it, in other words. And we don't really know why. I'm just putting that in there. You could say, well, maybe, maybe this is a big rabbinic debate. Maybe Abel brought the first, it says, because he brought, brings the, the choicest of the firstlings of his flock. He brought the very best. And Abel was like, oh, I'll just get some crap together. And, or Cain was like, I'll just bring this crap and put it up there. But that's not, we don't know that. We don't know that. It's not actually in there. Um, okay, but anyway, the Lord paid heed to Abel and his offering, but to Cain and his offering, he paid no heed. And it sets up the rest of the story. And I want to go ahead and say to you, I'm going to interpret this from the, from the opinion of Ken Dobson, so you can throw it out if you want. One of the things I think the Bible is pointing out here is that sometimes life is unfair and God seems arbitrary. Like there really is nothing in this story. It's not like God was like, I'm not a vegetarian. I prefer meat. You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't say anything like that. It just says, Cain did this, Abel did this. End of story. Now, how many of you know that life is unfair? Okay, so, <laughs> yeah, the Bible's just pointing this out, okay? Cain was much distressed and his face fell. He's depressed, really. And by the way, his face fell, this is... There's a phrase that's used in the Bible a lot when people are depressed. It's also used in other ancient Near Eastern languages, the same image, like Akkadian and a few others, his face fell. So depression is not a new thing, all right? He's depressed. Why? Because it's like, hey, I brought some stuff, and, you know, you're not paying any attention to me. Like, hello, I'm over here. I got some fruit and stuff. Like, notice me. How many have ever felt that in your life? Notice me. Look what I did. Now, if you've ever had any siblings, you know, you know very much this. That's, it's no fair that my brother or my sister got this and I didn't. I'm the good kid. I got A's. Look at them. They're dumb, you know, right? So we know the, the sort of psychological and emotional field that the story is playing in here. And Cain is depressed, and, is, and he's going around, it's like, oh, no one likes my offerings. God doesn't like my offerings. No one notices. All right. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you distressed? Which is an interesting question. It's not even obvious to God, in a way, why he's distressed. Who cares? You know? So you brought these offerings, and I didn't even notice them. Who cares? Why are you distressed? Why is your face fallen? Surely, if you do what is right, there is uplift. He's playing with the downward face here. The problem is with this text, God doesn't say what the right thing to do is. He just says, if you do what's right, there's uplift. But if you do not do what is right, and here's an interesting phrase, sin crouches at the door. Okay? And sin, I, I probably, you probably know this, but it means to miss the mark. It's like an archery term here. So, that is waiting. You're going to go off the path here is basically what God is saying. I know we hear sin and we've got this whole, you know, Christian backdrop with what all that means. 
in the very simple sense here, he's saying, you're about to miss the mark. You're about to wander off here. Sin crouches at the door, and, it, and its urge is toward you, yet you can master it. That's, that's, that's Yahweh's response here. So, we're going to read this more psychologically. Imagine, here's Cain. He's a little depressed. He's a little victim. You know, oh, no one notices my sacrifice. And that starts to build. And what does that build into? Something like resentment, something like judgment, something like anger. And is that like an animal crouching at your door? Yes, that's like an animal crouching at your door. What happens if you feed the animal of resentment, anger, rage, disappointment, and revenge? Well, its urge is toward you. It's, it's going to have its way with you. That's basically what Yahweh is saying. If you don't turn some consciousness toward this, it's going to devour you. He says, you can rule it, you can master it, you can be in relationship with it, you can change your mind, is basically what God is saying. And if you don't, some real darkness is possible. All right, here's the next part. I'm just going to look at my notes to see if I have so far said anything about the story that I wanted to say. I don't know. All right. Cain said to his brother Abel, so he's just been sort of warned by God here. Cain said to his brother Abel, and when they were out in the field, why does it say that? Cain said to his brother Abel, and when they were out in the field, oh, it must be a little hard to translate. This is... Um, the Jewish Publication Society translation of the Torah, and so it's sometimes more direct about the Hebrew here, so it must be a little ambiguous. So Cain invites, I think, Abel out to the field, and when they were in the field, Cain set upon his brother Abel and killed him. Now, I just want to tell you something. This is the very first story after leaving Eden. So Paradise is gone. There's an angel with the flaming sword standing there saying, you cannot go back. They've left the womb. The umbilical cord is cut. You cannot go back to paradise. And the very next thing to happen is Cain kills his brother. Now, what do you think the Bible is implying about what happens when you look into the human heart? Remember what I said? What was Karen Armstrong's uh, suggestion here? Look into the human heart. We want to go ahead and say, the Bible is saying, if you look in there, there's also the possibility for a kind of darkness that you can't imagine. The, I know people are like, we should all get back to the Bible. And then I think, really? You know? The Bible is very stark. This is in the human heart. It's not obvious, the, obvious that, that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. It's not obvious. And it's not obvious that we're likely to do it. All right. Cain set upon his brother Abel and killed him. And here comes the famous lines. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother? And he said, I don't know. Which is what every kid says when they've ever been caught doing anything at all. What's this? I don't know. I think I said it this week. Who left this out? I don't know. And then he says, am I my brother's keeper? And I want you to hear the power of that question. Am I my brother's keeper? Really, think about it personally 
And then collectively, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible? And we sort of, in the, in the um, pre-talk thing, we found something very interesting here. Um, it says that Abel is a keeper of sheep. That's what it says in Hebrew. He's a keeper of sheep. He tends to sheep. And he's using the same play on words here. Am I the tender of my brother? Do I keep him the way he kept sheep? Is that in any way my responsibility? Do you realize that you could argue with Yahweh here and say, that's none of my business. Who cares? You know, now I have his flock and my fields. Good to go. One less person to feed. Right? So he says, am I my brother's keeper? Then he said, this is Yahweh, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It tells you something, gives you a little clue into how the, the Hebrew imagination imagined Yahweh, their God, which was something like injustice cries out from the ground. And that becomes then a theme during the whole rest of the Torah, especially with the prophets. When you kill your brother or sister, it's the, the text is saying that Yahweh can hear their blood crying out from the ground. That's, that's a pretty um, arresting image. And then he says, you're going to be cursed, Cain. I'm not going to read the rest of the story. And Cain says, it's too much for me to bear. And God puts a mark on him because he's afraid other people are going to kill him because of this. And um, there's some consequences to his actions. So, so I want to ask some questions here. Or make some statements. The text is saying we have the capacity to, quote, do what's right. Even though the text doesn't really explain what that is. But it's something sort of to wrestle with. We have the capacity to do what's right. And we have the capacity to murder our brother. And I want you to think about this. How naive do you want to be? Do you think only some people have this capacity? Do all people have this capacity? The text is saying, you could disagree with the Bible, lots of people do, that everyone has the capacity. That's why these stories are at the very beginning, in in the origin stories of human nature. It's in there. I think, I think that love your neighbor as yourself doesn't have power unless its opposite is true. So, my, my feeling is, you know, that, that's in there. I'm not saying, like, if you go out to Culver's, you're going to, you, you know, you're just, it's right at the door, and if somebody cuts you in line, you're going to slit their throat, you know? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm sorry. No one's ever said that, by the way. It's an original thought, okay? I'm not saying it's, it's that um, um, possible. I mean, there are all kinds of things, uh, how you live your life and your worldview and your, your own morality and your own history and then the cultural context that you find yourself in and the rules and laws of society. All these things are borders and boundaries. But the text is still, still saying somewhere in the darkness of your own being, there's still that propensity. You probably have experienced it in your dreams. Okay? Here's point number two. The, voice, the forces of violence and anger and envy and rage can take over your life. That's what it's saying. It's crouching there. It really can. You can probably think of people that consented to this in a way. 
In other words, to use Jungian language, this is the shadow. It's the human shadow. And it's to be taken seriously. And we shouldn't be naive. Um, here, so here's the conclusion. We are no better or worse than our neighbor and our enemy. I think one way of reading this story is that I'm no better than Cain. I'm also no worse than Cain. You know? Here's an, another point. We all sin, so to speak, or miss the mark, and this requires consciousness. It requires consciousness. So if you're able to say to yourself, I have these capacities, then the entire list of moral teachings that I read about treating your neighbor in a certain way then makes sense, but only in relationship to these capacities. Here's my final point. The question, am I my brother's keeper, the answer is yes. I think that's what the sum total of the tradition that we've inherited from our ancestors, east and west, is trying to communicate to, it, to us. The answer is yes. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. And we're not doing such a good job. Right, left, and in between, mixed up, American, not American. We're not that good at it. I don't think much of our society values this really so much anymore. We might in lip service, but how we actually behave, how our economy actually works, is often not rooted in such things. So I'm saying it's something like a major problem. The story says, yes, you are your brother and sister's keeper, and you're not going to get away with it. <laughs> you're not going to get away with murdering your brother. That's, that's what it's saying. Now, I don't know how, but... Even if you think about it in karmic terms, something cries out from the ground. We know this from the earth. We have not been treating the earth like our brother or sister, like the great tradition has taught us. And what are the consequences of that? Well, you tell me. The blood cries out from the ground, so to speak. And same with how we treat our neighbors. I think, like, I don't want to get into a bunch of political things, but... I think the border, the crisis at the border, is very interesting right now. It's a very interesting symbol. And how many of you thought there was a problem or a crisis at the border when Trump was in charge? Anybody? Okay. How many of you know, really, honestly, that it's much worse now? Much, much worse. I had a friend who's really into this who decided to ride his bicycle the entire length of the southern border from California all the way to the end of Texas to raise awareness and to have conversations and to... What I learned from him is quite dark. It is a major symbol for the question, am I my brother's keeper or not? And I'm not saying anything about should we have laws, should we not have laws, you know. I, I'm just saying from a moral and ethical point of view, when you peel back the human heart and look in there, how are you going to treat your neighbor, your brother, your sister? It matters. And you could even say... The health of society matters upon such things. Okay. I'm going to end with what's in your bulletin. Heaven is my father, earth is my mother, and even such a small creature as I finds an intimate place in their midst. Use your imagination here. Is this true? Do I feel this? Therefore, that which extends... Throughout all the universe, I regard as my body, and that which directs the universe, I consider my nature. All peoples are my brothers and sisters, and all things 
are my companions. Thanks.